Hello, everyone, and welcome. I am so excited to welcome all of you to this webinar, Community Global Gathering, focused on mobilizing support for community mental health. My name is Elizabeth Keish. I am the warden of Rhodes House, and it is my great joy and privilege and honor to be a part of this fellowship of fellowships today. We are joined today by Atlantic fellows all over the world. We have Rhodes Scholars, current scholars, Rhodes Scholar alumni, and also I want to give a little special shout out to some Rhodes Scholars elect from the class of 2020 who will be joining us in Oxford Michaelmas term this autumn. We also have Obama Fellows with us and Schmidt Science Fellows. So four extraordinary fellowship programs, people all over the world. We are really, really thrilled today to have the opportunity to hear from three extraordinary speakers and experts. Dr. Vikram Patel, who is the Pershing Professor of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School, and I'm proud to say a Rhodes Scholar, India and Worcester, 1987. We also have Dr. Navdeep Kang, who is the Chief Clinical Officer of Brightview and an Obama Fellow. We have Kensei Radebe, who is an Atlantic Fellow for Health Equity in South Africa, and also the Project Manager at the Bertha Center for Social Innovation. So, Thank you, Vikram Navdeep and Kensei, for joining us. We really look forward to hearing and learning from each of you. And I'm also thrilled that this conversation today will be moderated by a current Rhodes Scholar, Dr. Romina Mariano, who is South Africa at Large and Queens 2016. She is a DPhil student here at Oxford and one of our scholar program facilitators. We've all experienced that in this time of social isolation, we need community and are finding new tools for coming together, building virtual community, learning from one another, and gaining solidarity and encouragement and insight for not only how we navigate the present, but how together we can work to make the post-COVID world fairer, more inclusive, and better than the world we are all living in today. So thank you for joining us. I really look forward to the conversation to come. And now it's my joy to introduce Tanya Charles, who is herself an Atlantic Fellow, Atlantic Senior Fellow, and a member of the Atlantic Institute team. And she will explain more about what we'll be doing together today. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, and thank you for that warm welcome. I echo that. Hi, everybody. Salibonani, bonjour, wherever you are. Thank you for taking the time today to be with us. Before we proceed, this virus has devastated many communities. A lot of people have lost their lives, have lost loved ones. People are suffering because they haven't been able to be with their loved ones in their end-of-life experience and journey so we want to observe a few moments of silence and I would invite you to do that with me. Thank you for that. We have an incredible lineup of keynotes, as you heard, who are going to tune our minds to really thinking about the burden of mental health in the world globally, not just at the current moment exacerbated by the crisis, but beforehand and whether there are community approaches to dealing with that. And finally, we are here to ignite our imagination and invoke the new. And it's a new with a K because we believe and the philosophy behind this is that we already know that the answers are within us through our ancestry, 
our his stories and her stories. And so it is my extreme pleasure to introduce someone I've gotten to know a little bit over the last few weeks, Dr. Romina Mariano, as you've heard. She's a Rhodes Scholar from Johannesburg, South Africa, and she's reading for a DPhil. Her research focuses on the use of novel MRI techniques to study spinal cord disease. And she also currently sits as a co-leader of the International Women in MS Scientific Group and as a scholar program facilitator for the Rhodes Trust. She's also been juggling taking care of COVID-related health issues in the hospital and still bring such a warmth and gentle spirit to everything she does. So I'm really glad to meet her and that she'll be moderating this conversation. Welcome, Romina. Over to you. We look forward to this discussion. Hi, everyone, and welcome. Thank you so much to both Elizabeth and Tanya for the kind introduction. I am very, very excited to be here and to be moderating this panel today on a topic that I feel strongly about both personally and professionally. In the midst of this global pandemic, the World Health Organization has warned of an imminent global health crisis, recognizing that the impact of this virus reaches far beyond the vaccine and the treatment of the disease itself. But mental health work has faced significant challenges throughout the years, notoriously. And so what excites me the most about today's panel is that we have three exceptional speakers who have built their careers within difficult spaces, working in their own communities to challenge societal beliefs and establish new narratives. And I really believe, and why I'm so excited to hear them speak, is that they are the people who will drive the positive change in our post-COVID chapter because they've already been accelerating the development of new and creative solutions to the fractures in our society that really COVID has just served to amplify. As Elizabeth mentioned, we're learning new ways to connect, and I'm really excited to hear how they feel this might drive us toward community-led mental health services. So it gives me great, great pleasure to introduce our first speaker, whose work has focused on the burden of mental health and the use of community resources for their prevention and treatment, and that is Dr. Vikram Patel, the Pershing Square Professor of Global Health and Wellcome Trust Principal Research Fellow at Harvard Medical School. He co-leads the Global Mental Health at Harvard and is a co-founder of numerous global mental health initiatives, as well as Sangha, an Indian NGO which won the WHO Public Health Champion of India Prize. He is a fellow of the UK's Academy of Medical Sciences and has served on the committee which drafted India's first national mental health policy. He has been awarded, to name a few, the Chalmers Medal, the Sarnath Prize, an honorary OBE, and was listed in Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People of the Year in 2015. So, Dr. Patel, over to you. Thank you so much, Romina, and thank you so much to the organizers for inviting me. I have a very fond memory of returning to Rhodes House. I think it was maybe last year for the Rhodes Health Forum. It's terrific to be reconnected, although unfortunate that it has to be done on a webinar, but still, it's better than not being able to meet at all. So I'm going to be sharing with you something that I'm extremely excited about, uh, something which I believe could be transformative in the context of the mental health situation in the world today. I hope that I can infuse you with some of that excitement and that passion and hopefully also engage some of you in the work going forward. 
So let me start by reminding ourselves that mental health problems are leading causes of suffering, affecting up to one in five of the global population at any given point in time. But they're not abstract forms of suffering alone. They kill as well. Suicide is the leading cause of death in young adults around the world. And people with mental health problems die about 10 to 20 years earlier than they should. There are profound levels of discrimination and abuses of human rights with incarceration, torture, denial of fundamental rights to dignity, freedom, and of course, most germane to all discussions, access to quality care. Indeed, despite strong evidence of the cost effectiveness of a range of interventions for mental health problems, more than 90% of people with mental health problems do not have access to quality care. And in part, this is because no country's spending on mental health is proportionate to the burden of mental health problems in that country. In many ways, this makes mental health a very unique subject in global health because all countries are developing when it comes to mental health. But you couldn't really say this, for example, for the care of people with, say, cancer or cardiovascular disease. And in this sense, mental health is a quintessential global health subject. Now, this was a situation before COVID. The advent of COVID has completely stressed out mental health care systems around the world that were already massively underperforming and will put them to their sternest test ever. Because this time, the crisis will be much, much greater and will affect vast swathes of the global population. I like to think of the mental health consequences of the pandemic in two different phases. There's the first phase, which is right now, the phase that we're in currently, where the pandemic is continuing to spread in many regions of the world, for example, where I'm locked down in India. Mental health has become a key concern globally. One metric of how important a concern this is is that I'm invited to give webinars almost every single day of the week, and that alone is something that's never happened in my life before. But when I think about the interest in mental health, it's clear that it's not because the virus infects your brain. But it's a complete consequence of the reaction of the media initially, of governments, and indeed, more broadly, of the community to this epidemic. If one considers the loss of loved ones, the enormous fear of infection that has partly been spawned by unfortunately communicated science, the loss of employment for millions of people around the world, the constant uncertainty about when, if ever, life will return to a semblance of what we used to expect and experience, the torrent of mixed messages about the science, both real and fake, and the complete lack of consensus around the world on what the exit strategy for a lockdown should be. Well, in my mind, it's not at all surprising when people say that 60 or 70 percent of populations have experiences of anxiety, fearfulness, sleep problems, irritability, and so on. Actually, the question in my mind is, why is it not 100 percent? And what are the 30 or 40 other percent who say they're in good mental health doing to actually stay well? In my mind, these mental health reactions are really rational responses of our minds to extraordinary circumstances that we have no historical precedent of experiencing. It's important for us not to medicalize these mental health experiences and look for solutions that lie much more in our personal and social worlds in terms of support systems that we can engage with. But there's a second kind of phase, which I think is much more relevant to our conversations, at least for me in this particular webinar. And that is the phase that will happen in the weeks, months, and even years ahead. A phase in which we will see a rise in the burden of clinically significant, that is to say, mental health problems that are sustained, persistent, and profoundly impairing in one's life. And we should expect to see a dramatic increase in these problems, primarily 
because of the impact of the economic recession, which is going to increase the absolute numbers of people who live in poverty. In fact, many of the poverty gains that we have made in the last two decades are going to be wiped out by this economic recession. But combined with the increase in absolute poverty, we're going to see a dramatic increase in inequalities because obviously those who are already privileged are going to be able to get back to work and to also transform the way they work much quicker than those who work, for example, with their hands. Of course, this is going to be twinned with continuing uncertainties about future waves of the epidemic and physical distancing policies, which will bite deeper and deeper into our mental health. This is what really worries me. A terrific piece of work chronicled in a book that was just released a couple of months ago called The Deaths of Despair by the Nobel Prize winning economist Angus Deaton and Anne Case has documented the cause of the falling of life expectancy in working age Americans following the economic recession in 2008. And they really placed the source of the reason for this, and of course the word the deaths of despair captures essentially what they think is the reason, is the despair that arose because of the rising inequality increasing poverty. And very importantly, these are not people who went hungry at night. It was a sense of the loss of purpose, a sense of the loss of meaning that people had, huge swathes of people in middle America, as the economic recession ripped apart the social fabric of their communities and their own jobs. Suicide and substance use were the leading causes for the rising mortality in these populations. Today, the economic recession is going to be far worse. It will not only affect the U.S., but it will affect the entire world. And of course, I'm particularly concerned about countries like India, which, like the U.S., have a profound level of inequality, a very weak social security net, and deeply fragmented healthcare systems. But in addition to all of these problems, India also has the largest number of poor people in the world. Regions like Africa and South Asia have a toxic combination of absolute poverty with all the other issues that countries like the U.S. face, and it is a toxic brew for a surge of deaths of despair around the world. And of course, as I've already mentioned, mental health care systems in most countries are completely ill-equipped to deal with this surge. And it's not only because we have a paucity of skilled providers, but also because of very narrow biomedical models of care that dominate mental health care systems. So what's the positive story and what excites me? Well, let me first of all reflect on what's been happening in the last couple of months. I think what's really exciting is the flourishing of initiatives to address the rising tide of mental health problems through telemedicine platforms. And while I'm excited about that, not least because they've really placed at the center of care the use of psychological therapies, which has often been ignored in mental health. You can't obviously prescribe a medicine on a telemedicine platform. They suffer from very similar barriers of the existing forms of mental health care in that they rely entirely on specialists, psychiatrists and psychologists. And of course, this is a group of providers who have historically been very scarce in number and very inequitably distributed within countries. This is, of course, also compounded by yet another barrier, which is digital literacy and adequate internet connectivity, which still remains a distant goal for large groups of the world's people, particularly, for example, in India, for the entire rural population and the poor. So where do we look for real excitement? For me, that excitement comes from the frugal innovations that have happened over the last 10 to 15 years from some of the least resource settings in the world, which have been true laboratories for transforming the way we think about how to improve access to evidence-based mental health care. This impressive body of evidence, generated by researchers in more than two dozen countries, 
has shown how a range of innovative strategies can address structural barriers related both to demand for mental health care as well as the supply of evidence-based psychosocial therapies. Let me give you a few examples of such innovations. The demonstration that you don't need to have complex psychological treatment packages, but that in fact very bared down parsimonious elements of these complex packages are just as effective. For example, behavioral activation for depression. Second, that by training providers to learn a library of such elements, one can get providers to learn how to deal with a range of mental health problems, such as mood problems, anxiety problems, and trauma-related problems, and to use simple decision-making rules to match people's problems with the particular treatment element that they need. Third, that one doesn't need a diagnosis. And this is so very important from a demand side issue. Many, many people don't want to be labeled with a mental illness. They prefer distress models to understand their mental ill health. And of course, these incredible models of global mental health innovation have shown that you don't need a formal diagnosis to trigger care. You can greatly simplify the dissemination of effective treatments by training frontline workers like community health workers and in my own work, lay people, to deliver these interventions this is not only very acceptable, but it also has high levels of effectiveness. And of course, it represents excellent value for money. More recent innovations seeking to scale as approaches have demonstrated the acceptability and effectiveness of digital training. And this is really an idea whose time has come because, of course, you can't bring people into a room these days to learn a particular skill. But also digital training offers a standardized and scalable way to deliver a new skill to a large population of providers. We've also shown that peer supervision is just as good as expert supervision for quality assurance. So what we're about to do in Harvard, in fact, we've launched this new initiative, is to bring all these innovations together because we believe by combining these, we can achieve a transformative scale-up in public health for mental health by improving access to one of the most effective interventions in all of medicine, psychological treatments. I often argue, you know, that if psychological treatments were a pill backed by a pharmaceutical company, they'd be the most widely prescribed medicine in history. But because there is no real commercial motive or incentive for these treatments to go out to scale, almost no one in the global south actually has access to them. And this is true also for poor people in rich countries. So I want to end by telling you about this initiative. It's called the Empower Program. It's an initiative of Harvard Medical School. And I'm delighted that one of the participants in this webinar, Josh Chauvin, who was a former Rhodes Scholar, is very deeply involved with this particular initiative. The goal of this initiative is to scale up evidence-based psychological therapies with an initial implementation focus on communities in the U.S. and India, two countries that may be very different on the surface, but as I mentioned earlier, share a lot of ills in common. What we're really going to be doing is scaling up three different curricula for frontline workers, how to assess mental health and make decisions how to manage acute crises, often related to COVID-19, and thirdly, how to treat clinical depression. In each of these, we are digitizing an evidence-based manualized intervention. Ultimately, this platform will offer a career path that enables frontline providers like nurses, community health workers, even lay people, an opportunity to grow, to master a treatment, and achieve the status of an expert, therefore motivating them and ensuring sustainability of the human resource. 
Future enhancements promise a number of different ideas, but for example, evaluating the effectiveness of the scaling up on population mental health and harnessing big data opportunities to develop prediction models to refine treatment selection so that we can actually use, for example, quality metrics to identify what aspect of the psychological therapy is actually producing the best patient outcomes and then emphasize those in further treatment delivery and training. The use of digital platforms for building the workforce is not only aligned with the use of telemedicine, but also with the urgent need for digital approaches for training and supervision in the light of the COVID-19 physical distancing policies. A note of caution, all of this is going to need resources. This is an audacious transformation. We're trying to re-engineer the mental health care system from hospitals, doctors, and drugs to community psychosocial interventions and frontline providers. And the biggest threat we have isn't government. It isn't political will. Actually, the evidence is so strong that this idea has found its way into every single global and national policy document. The real threat is that consequent to COVID-19, the mental health agenda will once again be pushed back from the global health and development agenda. I can recall way back in 1998 when I was invited to the World Bank to speak to a bunch of hard-nosed economists about why mental health should be prioritized. It felt like a really important moment in history. That was a time when the global burden of disease had just published its report showing that depression was the leading cause of disability-adjusted life years in the world, shocking everyone, really. So the economists were really interested. And I thought, yeah, this was the moment, 1998, and uh, mental health will finally be attended to. And of course, the MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals, came along in 2000, and there wasn't a mention of mental health. So mental health went back into the shadows, and luckily, 15 years later, mental health was recognized in the SDGs. But here we are in the first half of 2020, and once again, we need to make sure that mental health does not get shoved back into the shadows, because investing in mental health is an investment which enables individuals to regain hope for the future. But beyond regaining hope and acquiring the necessary cognitive capabilities to be effective in their work and personal lives, collectively, improving mental health at the community level will make societies more economically productive, but more importantly, socially cohesive. I cannot think of a more important investment in the face of probably the most serious economic and health crisis facing the world in a century. I want to end by saying that there's a remarkable other side to this idea of empowering community health workers and lay people to become mental health providers, and it is this. We are going to face the largest wave of unemployment in history. Tens of millions of people are going to lose their jobs. And at the same time, there is a massive need for people to receive care. I can see a remarkable coming together of these two forces in that we redeploy this huge number of people who are unemployed to become caregivers. Not only does this address the issue of unemployment as well as address the issue of unmet needs for mental health care, but the most powerful profit from caring for others is that you yourself improve in your mental health. One of the most powerful things I have experienced as a psychiatrist, but also as someone who's mentored a very large community health worker program, is the consistent finding that those who care for others see the biggest improvements in their own mental health. Thank you so very much for that, Dr. Patel. You said at the beginning you wanted us to end being enthusiastic and engaged with the topic, and I think that's exactly what you did 
also on a personal note, thank you for normalizing how we're all feeling at this time as we grieve this variety of losses together and for continuing to fight to bring mental health out of the shadows. What's also so inspiring is for a change, you've taken something from the developing world and brought it up to a platform as opposed to this continuous feeling coming from South Africa that we're always meant to be learning from the countries that are doing things better than we are. So I am very, very enthusiastic and thank you so much for that. Now, on another note of South Africa, I'm feeling very, very proudly South African to introduce our next speaker, who is Kense Radebe. She's currently based at the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship at the Graduate School of Business at the University of Cape Town. Her work largely focuses on social stratification and exploring how institutions and organizations can advance equity and social justice. She has worked on numerous initiatives at reducing the mental health treatment gap in South Africa, including setting up a low-cost mental health service center in Cape Town. She also currently serves on the South African Human Rights Committee, which monitors the implementation of the Mental Health Care Report. She is a Tecano Health Equity Atlantic Fellow, a Fulbright Scholar, a Mail and Guardian 2019 Young South Africans Award recipient, and an Alan Gray Orbis Foundation Fellow. Kense, thank you for being with us and over to you. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. And thank you to Prof. Tal for laying the groundwork because so much of what you were sharing and speaking about resonates a lot with what I'll be sharing, albeit mine is more focused on the South African and Cape Town context. But I think it's so important to be thinking about how we're innovating at the margins, particularly those of us who are working in the global South and who are working in a low and middle income context. A lot of my work in the NGO space and in the community mental health space, a lot of the conversations is around how community-led interventions are either unscalable or is an investment that stretches too far for government. So today I'm here to share a little bit about some of my experiences around being involved in community-level interventions, leading them and thinking about how do we actually find alternative ways to think about community mental health, especially post-COVID-19. In 2019, I was part of a team that co-founded the Counseling Hub in Woodstock. What the Counseling Hub was, and still is because it's still operating, was a low-cost initiative. So we were trying to bridge the gap between providing mental health services that were affordable, but also running an organization where we could cover our basic operating costs. And it was really an experiment because we only had a limited amount of funds and we thought, let's, let's try it out. Let's pilot it and let's see what will happen. And the reason why I'm sharing the story is because of some of the lessons that came out of that. What happened was over the year, which was 2019, we went from when we started in February from servicing, I think it was just about seven clients a week to between eight to 100 clients a week. What was significant about what we were doing is that we were charging 50 rands. So I think that converts to about $5 for a single counseling session. And we were working with lay counselors, volunteers, as well as trained students who were coming in to get some experience. So I think this speaks quite closely to the professor's point around finding alternative ways, particularly where you have constraints for human resources and capital, which is exactly the context here in South Africa. But for me, what was the main takeaway from that was that even though we started at a price point, which for many families in South Africa can also be thought to be prohibitive, but we thought that was the one way that we could break even, is that actually even at that price point, we saw our waiting list go from two weeks to three weeks to four weeks to six weeks. So we were actually unable to service as many people as we needed to and to keep up with the demand. For me, what's also critical is that this was prior to COVID-19. So this was when we were still dealing with the typical structural and socioeconomic issues that South Africans are faced with. So post-COVID-19, as you can imagine, that completely ramped up. 
And I think what's really important to acknowledge is where South Africa sits. I think a lot of this resonates as well with what the prof was saying is that in South Africa, over 80% of the population access their basic health services from the public sector. And we do have a significant high treatment gap. Some of the statistics indicate that only 30% of individuals who require mental health services will be able to access the health that they need. And what we do know is that currently the public sector is undercapacitated and under-resourced. We also know that less than 4% of the health budget currently is actually dedicated to community-level interventions. A majority of the budget sits at tertiary institutions, for example, like psychiatric hospitals. Of course, we know that in South Africa, we also are dealing with a quadruple burden of disease. So we're dealing with tuberculosis, HIV and AIDS, as well as other lifestyle diseases like diabetes and high blood pressure. So oftentimes when people speak about mental health, they speak about it as the poor cousin of healthcare because it's often thought of last, which is why it's so important to be engaged in advocacy work in this space as well. However, in South Africa, we do have a two-tiered health system. So we do find that there are some individuals who are accessing mental health care services in the private sector. Just over 17% of South Africans have access to the private sector. But what we found, and through my work in the counseling hub, is that actually even those who do have access to private insurance or the private healthcare sector, they're also not receiving some of the basic mental health services that they should be receiving because of their plans or how their plans are structured out. So what we found at the counseling hub is that a majority of people would come to us because they'd run out of their benefits from their private healthcare provider. So it just goes to show you that wherever you look, where we're dealing with mental health, there's actually a deep need to ramp up the resources, but also to provide basic healthcare, whether or not you have the money or you don't. Then, of course, lastly, and I think this is important to mention in the South African context, is that we do have a deep urban and rural divide. I work mainly in an urban space and in an urban setting, and you'll find that even if you perhaps can't access services from the public or the private sector, there might be NGOs who can provide those alternative services. But this is important because when COVID-19 started hitting South Africa, a lot of the NGOs that were operating actually began shutting their doors. And this was after the president announced the lockdown as well as the shutdown, which made it impossible for people to come to work and organizations had to find alternative ways of reaching their clients. So at the counseling hub, we were fortunate enough that we were already operating with some interventions. So we easily moved on to telephonic counseling. But this wasn't the case across the board, particularly here in Cape Town. We found that a lot of services where we would previously refer people to, we were actually unable to do that. I also want to contextualize this, that at the time when we saw the rise in COVID cases, we were actually seeing a decrease in the number of affordable and even free services that were typically available to individuals. And a lot of the issues that we were seeing coming through were issues related to lack of income and unemployment, issues around food security. Food security has probably, in my work and experience that I've been having over the last two, three months, has become one of the biggest issues across our communities here in Cape Town and potentially in the rest of South Africa as well. And then, of course, gender-based violence, because individuals were self-isolating at home as we were under lockdown. So a lot of the issues that we might not previously have seen, incidences of gender-based violence actually increased. So what did this mean? I think what it meant is that organizations had to innovate and think about different ways of providing those services. But the reality is that that actually wasn't possible. So we've seen that a lot of individuals have been falling through the cracks because the services that were available, for example, we have the South African Depression and Anxiety Organization, one of the biggest NGOs that provides telephonic counseling, had also seen their resources cut short, as well as others like ourselves at the counseling hub. So I think it's really important to think about how do we actually sustainably innovate, but also provide services even during crisis? Because I think that's what COVID-19 is teaching those of us who are working in this space to think about what are the long-term ramifications of doing this kind of work and to think about how do we provide services, particularly to those who are most marginalized, those who are homeless, 
migrant workers who might not necessarily have access to the same resources that perhaps a South African or someone living in an urban setting. I think what's really also then important to mention last, but is absolutely critical when you think about the duality between mental health and COVID-19, is that in a lot of our communities, we're seeing a rise of stigma. There's misinformation that's being spread about corona, but what we're also seeing, particularly on apps like WhatsApp, is individuals sharing information about somebody testing positive. This is, I think, a direct reflection of the anxiety and the fear that people are feeling. But what this means is that individuals actually feel ostracized in their communities, and this reduces the likelihood of people seeking health treatment if and when they need it. This is really important because oftentimes when we're thinking about where to intervene, we found that creating messaging that directly speaks to issues of fear, anxiety, and stigma and stress can actually have a positive impact in our communities. This then segues quite nicely into what I wanted to speak about in terms of what happens when our existing institutions or organizations like NGOs can't provide the mental health services that are needed. Over the last two and a half months, I've been involved with an initiative here in Cape Town called Cape Town Together. Cape Town Together is a community rapid level response to COVID-19. So we started about the middle of March. There were a group of us, community organizers, teachers, people working in the public health space. We realized after the president announced the national shutdown, what's going to happen to people? What's going to happen to their jobs? How are people going to be able to put food on the table? How do we actually design and be able to influence a community-driven response to this? Whether it's providing food, whether it's checking up on your neighbor who might be part of the at-risk population, so somebody who's over the age of 60, how do we support them? How do we support mothers who are looking after children in their own homes. So that's where the Community Action Network started, and we call them CANs. Currently in Cape Town right now, we have over 100 CANs operating across the city. We initially started organizing on Facebook, as we now organize via Zoom. We also organize on WhatsApp, and we also organize on Facebook because we found those to be really valuable spaces to share information and to share resources. When we really started organizing, it was around focusing on basic necessities. So we're concerned with accessing safe drinking water, particularly in informal settlements that hadn't had access to that for a really long time. So even before COVID-19 became an issue, organizing around community kitchens so that people who weren't able to earn an income and be able to feed their families or themselves would have access to spaces where they could do that. Thinking about where individuals could isolate safely. So for example, here in Cape Town, which is densely populated in some of our informal settlements, it's not possible to self-isolate at home if you test positively or even to be under lockdown. We had some really restrictive lockdown legislations during this period. What that meant is that we had to think about different ways of supporting these individuals. And that's what the community action networks really did. I think for me, what was fascinating to recognize is that there were a number of us who'd worked in the mental health space and we thought, well, mental health is going to become an issue. So we started developing a referral network where if somebody would come up with an issue and we needed to provide them some kind of support, we'd be able to do that. But for me, what was really brilliant was how individuals within the cans themselves actually started up their own, I would call them peer support groups, even though we didn't term them that when they initially started. So what these were were WhatsApp groups where people would organize and share information around, this is who you can call, these are the NGO services that are available, or this is the psychologist or the registered counselor that I know. This was really a ground level self-organizing initiative. And because of how the community action networks were organized, it was really easy to share and distribute those resources. Once we realized that this was something that was emerging from the ground up, we sought to think about ways of how we could structure it and make it most beneficial to the cans that we have. Because if it's starting, for example, in four neighborhoods, how can we replicate that for 20 neighborhoods, 30 neighborhoods, etc.? So what we then started and what I run weekly are these co-learning sessions. We bring together a cohort of all of our volunteers who represent the different cans across the city to share information, to share knowledge, to share what they are doing in their spaces to provide support. 
a lot of the volunteers that we're dealing with and that we're working with are right now dealing with stress, burnout, because every single day they're engaging, whether it's with their street champions, whether it's on their WhatsApp groups, thinking about how do we get food to people? How do we ensure people have access to testing? These are real life issues that are happening every single day on the ground. One of the organizing principles of the community action networks is that we need to move effectively and quickly. So a lot of times we need to make quick decisions. And what's been amazing about being part of the community action networks is that there is no centralized decision-making structure. So communities are self-organizing and coming up with interventions that are relevant to their hyperlocal context. What that also means is that we're able to act faster because maybe what's relevant in Wanderbosch or in some of the wealthier environments might not necessarily be relevant in some of the contexts where you don't have access to those resources or where the lockdown and the impact of COVID-19 is actually exacerbated because of the structural inequalities that are present in our city and in our country. What that has also taught me is exactly what Prof. Patel was also speaking about, is that it's ordinary people who are forming part of these peer support groups on WhatsApp who are providing these mental health resources and sharing them. It's people who were teachers, people who were bus drivers, people who are sitting at home and are seeing the impact and the effect that this is having on their own families, but also on their own communities. It's been amazing to witness how people can organize. Cape Town is one of those cities that is severely unequal. A colleague of mine often says, we have Table Mountain here. It's one of the big tourist attractions. And everyone always says, the mountain is beautiful depending on which side you're actually viewing it. And I think that is a perfect metaphor to explain some of the inequalities in our city. But to actually see how different camps that perhaps would have never crossed paths, individuals who would have never worked together in the past, are coming together, whether it's a psychologist coming in to do a training on how to debrief whether it's a registered counselor coming in to do a training for the volunteers on how to speak about death, which is becoming a real issue in South Africa as we're seeing the death toll of coronavirus cases pile up and what that means. What's amazing for those of us who are working in this space is that before, we would have never thought this kind of self-organizing would actually have been possible and would actually have been sustainable because people are doing it wherever and whenever they need it. So I think for me, that's one of the biggest lessons and takeaways. And I think it just proves the theory that community-led or centering people, particularly at the community level, is something that complicates the process. Actually, it makes it much quicker because they have the integral community-level knowledge to actually implement some of these initiatives and understanding what will work in what context and what won't work in another context. Something else that's interesting for us here in Cape Town is that we need to actually translate a lot of our content. So you might design something in English and need to translate it into Kosa. What's been amazing is having psychologists, registered counselors, lay counselors come in and say, you've designed this toolkit, great. Let's redesign it into this different language or let's make a video about it. Let's animate it, let's share it. So that's been amazing to see that sharing of resources. I think for me, the main takeaways of having been involved with the counseling hub, which was a really different kind of community level intervention, as well as with the community action networks and the ground up mental health interventions that have been coming out of that space, is to think about just starting. A lot of the solutions and interventions might not necessarily be perfect. But when I think about where we were two and a half months ago and where we are today, if we'd waited to have enough psychologists, if we'd waited to have enough psychiatrists, we wouldn't have been able to provide people with the immediate care that they needed when they needed it. It's not to downplay the important role of professionals in the space, but highlight that actually people do have the lived experience to be able to respond to their neighbor, to their friend, to somebody that they know who's going through a similar crisis. And then work where it's possible to work. I think when the lockdown was initially announced in South Africa, we were still able to move around. But then afterwards, we were actually quite severely restricted to our homes. For us working in the community action network space, we were, well, what does this mean? How are we going to organize? How are we going to get groceries to people? How are we going to get food to people? How are we going to get resources to people? But actually what that showed us is that organizing on WhatsApp or Zoom or Facebook 
people are very innovative in trying to find alternative solutions to meet their needs. And that's exactly what happened in the mental health space as well. And also leverage the resources that you have. When we started with the community action networks, one of the issues that we were struggling with was, will we accept donations? Because that was happening a lot across the city. And we're not an NGO. We're not an organization. We're literally a flat structure that is organizing across the city in really different ways. But what we've seen in the mental health space is people being willing to give their professional help and assistance, whether it's from the government space. So people who are working in government who are saying, we're seeing what the CANs are doing. How do we get involved? How do we support you in this work? And that wouldn't have been possible if we hadn't started to be able to build those inroads and those networks into institutions, which have relatively been difficult to engage with. Lastly, I'd like to speak about taking on a whole systems approach. Mental health doesn't happen in isolation to poverty, unemployment, high crime rates, or other socioeconomic issues. It's actually deeply embedded in that. It's not something that we put in its own little box and say, oh yes, mental health, we need to address that. I think what made the community actions mental health response different and unique is that as these issues started coming up, we were able to concretely tie them to mental health and to say, actually, when we're having a co-learning session about building a sustainable farm, let's also talk about stress, let's talk about anxiety, let's talk about all of these things and create the language. Because I think people have an instinctive understanding of what it is that they're going through or what's causing them anxiety and stress. But to provide the space and the language where people can safely speak about that has been absolutely brilliant and amazing. So we don't know where the cans are going to go post-COVID-19. They might be completely different. They might disappear. But I think some of the organizing principles and lessons about that is that centering community perspectives, centering community voices, and letting them lead the process in instances like that is much more fruitful and beneficial and sustainable rather than a more top-down approach. Thank you so much, Kente, for that inspiring talk. I think by highlighting the inequalities in South Africa, you really showed us that to give people that fundamental care, you have to really engage with the community and understand the nuances because the care you give them has to be culturally acceptable and has to be delivered in a way that they'll accept it. I think it's just incredible how you inspire and empower the community to help themselves. So thank you very, very much for that. Now we'll be moving on to our final speaker, who I am very excited to introduce. We have a very international panel today, and so now we are moving away from South Africa to Ohio, and I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Navdeep Khan, who's a psychologist and the Chief Clinical Officer for Brightview Health. After spending over five years leading behavioral health strategy and innovation for Mercy Health, Dr. Kang joined Brightview for the opportunity to develop best practices in addiction treatment. He has devoted his professional efforts to advancing healthcare access and quality, particularly as related to behavioral health. In 2016, he led the formation and operations of the Addiction Treatment Collaborative, a multi-agency network of care for addiction medicine services. He was Clinician of the Year at the Mercy Health Foundation in 2017 and selected by President and Mrs. Obama to their inaugural fellowship class in 2018. And in 2019, the Ohio governor appointed him to a four-year term on the Recovery Ohio Advisory Council, which is tasked to redefine state healthcare delivery. So on that wonderful note, Dr. Kang, over to you. Thank you, Romina, for that tremendous introduction. To give some background on my work, I think there was an earlier comment that maybe Kenzie made that sometimes we feel like we may be innovating at the margins. And I oftentimes do feel like that is where my focus has been, working in the traditional healthcare system, attempting to change practice paradigms, directly addressing inertia when it comes to scope of practice or the focus of non-mental health clinicians 
to understand that while they may treat patients from one specialty angle, patients are not monoliths, and therefore a patient with a heart condition or with diabetes may also have another comorbid condition, a mental health condition, likely 20% or more of people at any given time, as Dr. Patel referenced. And so I have oftentimes felt like innovating at the margins is where my work has been focused, but I think meaningfully so in that attempting to transform the professional delivery of mental health services and expanding the workforce from inside of the health system is a valuable place to start. However, if we zoom out and understand the scope of the need across the lifespan when it comes to specialty populations, adults, children, seniors, and the variation of need that presents when it comes to uh, folks with substance use disorders and addiction, we start to understand that no matter how much we attempt to surge staffing from a professional services standpoint, the need will always outpace our ability to build a workforce. Even if we were to be able to build a professional workforce at great speed, we would still be outpaced by the need for services that the general population of humanity presents with. And COVID is not going to make that any easier, as has been very eloquently described. Sometimes I do feel like when we're talking about professional services, we are providing psychotherapy as an intervention for poverty or an intervention for inequality. And so it is also important to emphasize what has already been stated in that mental health conditions themselves aren't a monolith and don't exist in isolation. Oftentimes they're a symptom of something more. They're a byproduct of systemic problems in our societies or in our communities. So a more comprehensive response is needed when it comes to service delivery. But even if we were to narrow our focus into an interventional lens, I'm a clinician, I'm a psychologist by training, so I think like a clinician. One of my thoughts around this is matching our intervention with the level of care, as it were, or reconceptualizing how we think about levels of care. In other words, we have a foundational workforce that could be surged to a slightly higher level of professional service providers across the world psychologists, psychiatrists, counselors, et cetera, folks who have gone through school and through training to be able to deliver services given that specialized background. However, what we'll see, again, if the need expands so far beyond that, is probably a more strategic approach is in order where we target the efforts of those people in a couple of different areas. So one, there's been the question around folks who have severe and persistent mental illness, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, clinical depression has been referenced a couple of times today already. For those more profound or more severe conditions, more skilled training or more experience is probably in order or a much more comprehensive service delivery set is in order. And so even if we were to direct the service capacity towards those most acutely in need, we would probably still not be able to meet the total demand for service. But I think that would probably direct that level of intervention more appropriately at that level of need. That leaves out everybody else. (laughs) And so the second piece of the puzzle has to be very similar to what we've already been talking about in that we convert, train, educate lay people to become more expert in mental health and mental wellness. 
the interesting thing about this is that we are already all technically experts in this in some way, shape, or form. Now, we all have different levels of insight, as evidenced by 60% of folks reporting that they have some measure of anxiety in the post-COVID world, and 40% not reporting the same, uh, maybe simply a lack of acknowledgement or insight that, hey, you might be experiencing something as part of this global pandemic. But training people to become more discreet experts to provide what I would label as lower levels of care or lower levels of intervention for lower acuity needs. The thing I would say about it, though, is that we may have a collective lived experience, and dare I say there may be a silver lining or opportunity around the pandemic if more people have experienced some measure of mental health challenge or just anxiety and acknowledging the fact that they've experienced that could lead to more engagement around this. Without adequate training, we do run some specific risks that I think are relevant to mention. We have a saying in the United States around the lines of good intentions can kill people or good intentions can harm people. There is a literature base around peer-led mental health services that if not well-informed, if not well-trained, can actually lead to negative outcomes for people. Part of what we've been talking about here is misinformation around coronavirus, and I think many people can also understand that there is misinformation, stigma, and misunderstanding around mental health conditions and what really drives them. Are they moral failings, or are they something else? Are they a healthcare condition? Are they part of the human condition? That debate has existed as long as humans have been around. If we rely on folks with lived experience, but without formalized training, even on a minimal level, to provide intervention or to direct people with the identified problem towards intervention or towards other services, what we could have is an inaccurate matching of the person's need to the intervention that's offered. To offer a little bit of detail, when it comes to addiction services, which is where more of my work has been focused over the last several years, there is a scientific base on what is evidence-based practice in addiction treatment. And then once you have those guardrails, you can see what starts to fall outside of that. Holistic treatments are good. Holistic treatments are important. Addressing comprehensive service need is important. But once we go too far outside of that, we are offering things that aren't actually evidence-based, that don't actually produce a meaningful outcome for people. If we look at a biological, psychological, and social support solution for treatment, that's one thing. If we rely on complementary ancillary services like equine therapy or other forms of therapy that in themselves can be helpful as an ancillary, but we leave out the core scientific principles, then we direct people towards abstinence-based treatment. We direct them towards things that ultimately don't produce a good outcome, even from a mortality standpoint. That's a long-winded way of me saying that If we are going to tap into a community-led or layperson-led network of mental health service intervention, we have to be mindful of the training aspect to that. I was heartened when uh, Dr. Patel referenced the idea of training and training in the fundamental practices. Everyone here can resonate with what those fundamental practices would be, creating a safe space for the person, generating hope, generating optimism offering some very basic skills training, experiential skills training that people can apply across conditions without a label of what the diagnosis is. But that training is absolutely essential because if we deputize people without any measure of training, even a foundational level, then we actually run the risk of making our condition collectively worse. And so I can't understate the importance of training on that. I think that there is a natural question then of who's going to pay for that. 
I have a typical paradigm in my mind that I think about working in American healthcare that people will do what you pay them to do, they will do what you make them do, and they'll do what they want to do. And when it comes to mental health care service delivery, we have very little in the form of making people do it. Health systems are not mandated to provide certain levels of intervention or care, and they're certainly not paid for it. So the health system that I used to work for, very large health system, one of the largest in the United States, I think that our budget for paper was actually more than our budget for behavioral health services, and we were in a paperless system. I say that somewhat jokingly, but it's also realistic that if we don't fund these initiatives, even non-professional, layperson-led training initiatives from a public health standpoint, then we won't make the progress that we need to. And so advocating for funding, even if it's directed in this other area, not towards the traditional health system, will be a tremendous challenge because what we have going on in our community here is a lot of great conversation and idea generation around surge planning and peer recovery-led services for addiction and mental health. At the same time, on the exact same day, we are having discussions of budgetary cuts to local government that will take away from what already is meant to be in place from a social services and healthcare standpoint. So how can we realistically plan to add something new when we are potentially going to take away from the core that we have already built so far? So I think we find ourselves on a very dangerous precipice that if we don't have clarity on not just limiting cuts to what exists already, but very strategically adding to what we have potentially in a layperson community-led workforce, then we will not only not make progress, but we will go in reverse by succumbing to more immediate-term budgetary pressures. So if we don't pay for it, we won't be able to generate a layperson workforce. In the end, I think of this then as a continuum of matching professional-led services to higher levels of care, and then lower level of care needs or earlier stages of a condition with layperson-led or digital therapeutics and potentially less invasive interventions, if you want to think of it that way. In the end, the whole picture or the whole continuum can, I think, best be summarized by this concept of democratizing the skills in mental health services. Sometimes our colleagues look at themselves as being wizards in an ivory tower, like we have some special knowledge that we have been trained on how people work, and therefore we are the experts on the human experience. That couldn't be further from the truth. It is quite an egotistical stance for our colleagues to take oftentimes. And one of my great goals or endeavors in professional life has been to offer transparency, that there is nothing magical about what we do when we have a patient or a client with us that we then present the person back to the world in some kind of better state. There is an underlying human component to interacting with someone when even delivering professional services that everyone can tap into. So democratizing the skills that some of us went to school for and put years of effort into, but can be distilled and translated in a very simple way that every single person can make use of and apply in their life in their own inner experience and with the person right next door or the person who lives upstairs or whatever it might be. So my hope is that if we are able to fund a truly community-led, peer-led endeavor towards democratizing mental health skills across the human population, that coronavirus, and again, our state prior to the pandemic, will actually prompt us to find our way back to each other. 
in a lot of ways, we are probably the most depressed, distanced, disconnected human cohort that has ever collectively walked the earth. And the irony of the pandemic and us sheltering in place across the planet, I think is not lost on anyone in this conversation. But my hope is that the lived experience of this for so many, for such a protracted period of time, prompts us to find our way back to each other and tap into the existing science that we already have, that we can translate not just into professional practice, but into community practice. Thank you very, very much for that. I think it's just great to hear about the fact that we should start to challenge the traditional medical models that we've been taught and what we've been taught from the textbooks and that there's really a fine balance when you're decentralizing mental health care that you need to ensure the people you're asking to support the patients are being supported in themselves and to always focus on the individual. I think that was a really great core message to end on. Thank you very much for having me as your moderator. And thank you once again to the speakers. This has been absolutely wonderful. And now you will be hearing from Evie O'Brien, the Interim Executive Director of the Atlantic Institute. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. It's my honour on behalf of the Institute, Rhodes, Obama Fellows, Rich Science Fellows, to thank our speakers, Professor Patel, Dr. Kang, Kensei, thank you so much for honouring us with your presence, for catalyzing our collective thinking and action towards the next evolution of the revolution in mental health care, bringing innovation at the margins to the centre. So desperately needed, thank you so much. Would also like to thank Romina for your superb, graceful and thoughtful and insightful moderation of our session today. It would be remiss of me briefly not to mention, as we all know, that COVID-19 has not paused in any way existing injustices. It has only served to amplify and reveal them. And so we acknowledge that many people were making dire decisions as we speak about whether they stay in lockdown and hunger or whether they leave their homes and risk catching coronavirus. At the same time, we remember what's happening with much respect and love in the United States with George Floyd and police violence, the loss of his life, and remember his family and communities and all of those people in the United States who are dealing with this and it hasn't stopped as a result of COVID-19. So thank you to all of you. Our next webinar, our next conversation is in two weeks on June the 11th and it's on humanity post-COVID-19.